You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. Cocktails. And yeah, cocktails is a, I found that's a subject that's interesting me more lately. Uh, I like wine like anybody does, but I find cocktails to be more interesting. There's more to talk about, you know, more ingredients, more stories. Um, and there's not as much voodoo behind them as there is about wine, you know, things like, you know, it tastes like peach and strawberries and that sort of thing. But anyway, John Demers is a, um, He's um, a food writer, um, and he's uh, he was in New Orleans for a long time. And now, where are you now, uh, John? You're in Virginia. I am in Northern Virginia, basically the D.C. area. Okay. And and you're right, Errol, that that you know when you come at anything as a writer, a food writer, or a cocktail writer, or a wine writer, but certainly as a cocktail writer, it's all about the story. And so, you know, that's really what I tell is a story. I mean, I'm, I'm not a bartender, you know, I'd li- I wouldn't mind being, but I'm not. But there, there is a lot of story involved in the Vieux cocktail created in the 1930s at the Monteleon Hotel. I mean, how can you miss with something that involved one of New Orleans great hotel stories, one of New Orleans' great cocktail stories, and this is just a chance to drink a lot of booze. I mean, how can that be a bad thing? Well, let's set this up. You have a, a new book out that's called, it's called The View Carrey. Mm-hmm. It's named after a cocktail, and you think this is a, a cocktail that everybody in New Orleans would drink, but it's not a well-known cocktail anymore. Uh, it kind of fell from public view. In fact, I can't guarantee that I've ever had a View Carrey cocktail. Uh, and so it's kind of becoming... I guess the bit of a resurgence. Uh, it was invented in the 1930s by a bartender at the Montleon. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, but the story about the about the Vieux is really part of the story of a lot of the classic cocktails in terms of what goes into them and and, uh, and the various ingredients. So tell us about the evolution of the Vieux cocktail. Well, well, sure, and yes, Errol, you're you're right about the Monteleon. Um, <clears throat> today, if you order, if you go to the Monteleon Hotel on Royal Street to order a Vucare, then you'll almost certainly, in fact, probably certainly, be sitting at the Carousel Bar, which, as many of us know, turns very slowly. Um, <clears throat> but the actual cocktail was invented at the Monteleon in the so-called lobby bar, which was a period piece in the sense that hotels, grand hotels, had a bar on the lobby that was invariably creatively known as the lobby bar. And, and so a guy named Walter Bergeron came to New Orleans in 1918 from Thibodeau. And, and you know, with a name like Bergeron, where the hell else is he going to come from? But uh, he came to work in New Orleans, worked in a cigar store, got arrested for having a gambling device at some point, but ended up working for the Monteleon family at the hotel on Royal Street. And 
he decided that, you know, I mean, sure, he made Sazerac's coming out of his ears, which remains sort of the motherload, mothership of New Orleans cocktails. But he decided to do something from his own heart, if you will. Uh, we don't know much about him. So maybe he created it from some customer who tipped him big, you know, who knows? <clears throat> we don't know. But he kind of created a cocktail that evoked the 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 origins of New Orleans. And so he said, okay, well, we're French, right? Vieux Carré, all that, French Quarter. So he used cognac, the world's most famous brandy, and, and then also Benedictine, which was allegedly invented by the Benedictine monks, like in, you know, the year 17, 16, whatever. Um, a lot of this stuff is pretty iffy in terms of factuality, but brandy and Benedictine for France. And then he said, well, you know, Antonio Monteleone, um, you know, is Italian. In fact, he's Sicilian. So let's use some sweet vermouth. And so he put in sweet vermouth. And then finally, because he's in the 1930s, not in the 1830s, he said, let's reflect America. And America at that time, as it evoked, as it evolved into New Orleans, was very much rye whiskey, often from Pennsylvania, um, Virginia and Pennsylvania. So he mixed, you know, brandy and Benedictine, sweet vermouth from Sicily, and then also um, rye whiskey. And then in a stroke of bartending genius, he, um, he put in Angostura bitter, bitters, which are typically known now as being from Trinidad. But he looked down the street, right down Royal Street and found Peixos. And now Peixo, of course, is owned by the Sazerac Company. So that's another cocktail connection. But, but Peixos bitter at the, bitters at the time were award-winning. And so he used Peixos bitter. So, so it basically has one, two, three, four, five, six ingredients in the drink. And he named it the Vieux Carré, being the center of New Orleans and the center of Monteleon life. So, so <clears throat> certainly you better you better find a bartender who knows how to make a Vieux Carré if you go anywhere near the Monteleon Hotel. Okay, let's just put the uh, yeah. I want to acknowledge the uh, the, the Carousel Bar in the Monteleon, uh, which is right off the lobby, and the, and you sit there and it does like a a slow spin. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's really, but just let's put the Vieux Carré to the side for a second and talk about, I guess, the cocktail that, that's most famous in New Orleans, the Sazerac. Mm -hmm. I want to do, I want to do this kind of compare the ingredients. What would be the main ingredients in the Sazerac? Well, that's that's interesting because originally <clears throat> the Sazerac had a had a um, a cognac in it called Sazerac Père et Fils, which is of course a cognac, a brandy. Um, it has it has kind of an absinthe taste to it, whether you use real absinthe or anisette, you know, kind of a licorice taste. And um, and while I'm not an expert on the Sazerac, it does follow the shall we say the what we can the flavor profile of what cocktail people like to call a pre-prohibition cocktail. I am much more help, much more um, happy in a pre. Prohibition setting, in in that you put booze with booze, and when you needed more something else, you added more booze. Um, I'm not a big fan of Hawaiian punch and uh, and or li even lime juice, a la margarita. 
um, there was just a sense that cocktails were different in those days. And so you put booze with booze. And so when Walter Bergeron, I mean, he was post-prohibition, he created this, I mean, obviously the lobby bar at the Monteleon was not officially open, not legally open during prohibition. We can't say it wasn't ever illegally open, but so he came back with a very much a pre-prohibition mindset, just like the Sazerac, just like the Ramos Gin Fizz and other famous New Orleans cocktails. And, and he kind of created his own. If we think of world cocktails, we might think of the Negroni as being similar. We might think of the old fashioned. We definitely think of the Manhattan as being similar. All these cocktails that we can do in this, in this mode, if you will, are very, very, very booze centric, booze forward. And, and so um, the, 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 as I often say, the, the Sazerac is kind of the mothership of New Orleans cocktails. I mean, not only was it older going back to the 1800s, but, but I mean, it kind of inspired a lot of cocktails. And, and, and the, um, the Vieux Carré is definitely one of those. But both the Sazerac and the Vieux Carré had, had cognac as one of the ingredients. Mm -hmm. They did. Now, now later on, I think the cognac dropped out. Like I said, I'm not a total historian. That was the Tim McNally book that about the Sazerac. But um, but I I believe that the Sazerac uh, Sazerac pair a feast, you know, father and son was the name of the cognac that first went into the cocktail called the Sazerac, and 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 then as that cock as that cognac disappeared for whatever reason, um, the the cocktail started being known as the Sazerac anyway, even if it didn't have Sazerac cocktail. But yes, it does have, it does have that. And um, are you, uh, Errol, are you a big Sazerac drinker? Uh, well, I don't know if you call it a big Sazerac drinker, I, but yeah. You drink big Sazeracs. Yeah, yeah. that's my, uh, <clears throat> except I, I, I do something that's, uh, that's heresy. Uh, okay. Sazerac people. So I, I could never be a Sazerac insider because I like mine on the rocks. Ah, uh, which yeah, people, they... They do a lot of nonsense, a lot of a lot of showbiz to avoid being on the rocks. I yeah. like on the rocks too, and and certainly when I make Vucare, which is typically and traditionally on the rocks, I always always have ice cubes, and that's it. You know, I mean, no matter what anybody says or anybody does, um, you know, the cool thing about the Vucare for me as a personal story is that I spent many years working at the Fairmont Hotel, now again, the Roosevelt. <laughs> and, um, and so my, one of my jobs was to take people to the Sazerac bar and to feed them Sazerac cocktails, writers from elsewhere, from the Chicago Tribune, the New York, whatever. And, um, and so I didn't know a hell of a lot about Sazerac cocktails until I watched the bartenders in the Sazerac bar make a million of them. Um, and so that was really pretty cool where you, you would, you would put some sort of licorice flavor into the glass and you'd spin the glass, the empty glass, and then you spin the glass in the air to coat the glass with a licorice flavor and particularly aroma. So when you get a Sazerac served to you, um, no matter who you watch do it, it will attack your nose with licorice. And because that's just, and there's none in there. You pour it out after. So mm -hmm. it was always, it, that was my first introduction, really. Well, that licorice flavor came from absinthe. I mean, absinthe was always. Well, absolutely. 
And then from Anaset, which was the, the legal alternative when absinthe was forbidden as making you crazy or, you know, whatever. Um, my understanding is that we now know actual science and um, the, the, the absinthe that we know of in, in the world is not, is not going to make you crazy, Errol Aboard. I mean, it's wow. really, really a good thing. Um, so now a lot of people are making absinthe and using better absinthe probably than we ever had before. So, so yeah, there, there's a lot of absinthe in the New Orleans drinking story. Well, the, um, what if the, um, the mixture with the absinthe flavors made in New Orleans? It's, um, um, it'll come to me. I'm, I'm there. Okay. But, but, uh, but the story with absinthe was that, I don't know if it's true or not, was that in making absinthe, you had this kind of piece of wood called wormwood. Wormwood, yes. Yeah. So far, and, so good. Uh, supposedly, that did something to enhance its flavor, but it was deemed as being poisonous or to have a bad impact. And so that's why ultimately absinthe was outlawed. And then they figured out um, a way to do it without it. You know? but, uh, yeah, no wormwood for this boy. Um, yeah. And, you know, there is an alternative, very cynical story that I like a lot because it makes total sense. And that is in, in and around New Orleans and I'm sure elsewhere, um, the wine industry, the people selling wine were in assist, ascendancy, that wine was taking over as a, as a beverage. And they saw the absinthe world as being a competitor. So there is a strong story, a believable story that that the wine industry lobbied in Congress to have absinthe outlawed and and kind of, let's just say, created the whole bit about about it making you crazy. Um, I like that story, actually, I think not just because I like it, like it, but because I think it makes sense that that yes, artists and writers and wild people drink absinthe a lot in France as in New Orleans, but but really there was no real sense that absinthe caused them to be crazy, that they were basically crazy yeah. already. Okay. Without thinking about it, I'm embarrassed, I forgot about it for a second, it's Herb Saint, okay? Oh, right, right, because, right. Because that was the New Orleans creation that tastes like absinthe, but it wasn't absinthe. Mm -hmm. No yeah. wormwood. Uh, and so that's used in a lot of drinks uh, in the way that athlete would have been. And that too is owned by the Sazerac uh, company today. And so it's, it's really an important part of the, uh, of, a, of, a, of a board tender's resources. Yeah, well, it, it, it is. And the, and the Sazerac company has been very protective overall. I know that there's something called a Sazerac house or something now, and I've never been, I haven't been there to be there. But um, I'm intrigued because they also make Pecho bitters now. They're the owners of Pecho bitters. They were the kind of licensor of the Sazerac bar when I was there at the Fairmont Hotel. And so I got to know them a little bit, but I also got to know that they were very protective about their brands, a la maybe Disney almost. They were the Disney of booze. Um, and, and so I kind of admire that, but, but they, they have played a big role. And they have protected the overall sanctity of the Sazerac as a cocktail. And, you know, in a world where everybody wants to put like lime juice and, and, and what shall we say, kiwis and everything, um, I'm kind of glad they're purists, frankly. I mean, they're purists for the American dollar, but they're purists anyway. Yeah, let me tell you, when you, next time in New Orleans, 
at Sazerac House on Canal Street is a wonderful place. Wow. It's a great museum town. They did a fabulous job with it. And they have a lot of virtual stuff they do and all kinds of things. It's just really, mm. uh, it's really amazing. And so I recommend it to anybody listening, uh, even if you don't like Sazerac's. I mean, it's really a, um, a history of the cocktail and the various uh, ingredients. But John, in the early days when they were using cognac mm-hmm. and mixing it with whiskey, that's pretty heavy drinking. I mean, just cognac itself, I mean, can kind of like, well, knock me out, okay? And so to think of cognac as a, as a mixer, I mean, I can understand it gradually dying out. <laughs> yeah, cognac as a mixer, that's that's putting it mildly for the, the situation. Well, I mean, it's, when we look back at the history of cocktails in New Orleans and, and you know, everywhere, I mean, New York has a strong cocktail tradition in San Francisco and other major cities. The thing we have to come away from is just what strong drinks these were in general. I mean, pre-prohibition, um, and again, Walter Bergeron created the Vieux Carré after prohibition was ended, after, the, you know, the, the law changed again, thank goodness. Um, and the world, I mean, it's it's interesting to think of. One, that before prohibition, there were all these liquor companies and, of course, wineries in California and and a lot of people doing a lot of boozy things. And then the whole thing shut down for years and years and years with the governmental prohibition. Um, and then it started up again. And I can only imagine Walter Bergeron at the Monteleon lobby bar you know, suddenly being able to use all these products or to, or to look for products, because after all, many companies went out of business and liquor companies, wineries in California, some wineries managed to stay afloat in California and I'm sure New York State and elsewhere by making Sacramento wine, you know, not Sacramento, but Sacramentel, you know, for churches. And, and that was kind of like a survival technique because apparently the law exempted churches, um, not fried chicken, but, uh, you know, get the idea. Um, and so suddenly when Bergeron was sort of thinking about this drink, he had a lot more colors in his palette to paint with. And so that's when he got the idea of being French and Italian and American with bitters from far away in, in Trinidad and also down the street on Royal Street at Peixos. So it's it must have been kind of an exciting time. Yeah, especially with Peixos, like invading the bitters right there, on, uh, right there in the French Quarter. It's really a misnamed product because bitters really aren't bitter. Uh, they're more uh, fragrant. I, I agree with that. I, I never really understood the use of the word bitters there, but obviously it's it's quite, I mean, like like Angostura, which is the best known bitters in the world or the most popular whatever, um, even more than our beloved Peixo, um, you know, started in Venezuela during the Simone Bolivar, Simon Bolivar uh, recommend, you know, revolutions and created by a doctor in Venezuela. And then when that doctor sort of became, um, you know, more when when the wars were over and all that, and Venezuela presumably was, don't cry for me, Venezuela, when it was free, then he took a company, created a company around the bitters. And, and the whole bitter story is interesting because then he moved this guy, he was German, fighting for Venezuela, you know, goes to Trinidad to start his company. And that's where it still is. Then you have Mr. Peixot, Monsieur Peixot, 
who with his family was part of San Domingue, Santo Domingo, we know it as Haiti. And he was one of the people who escaped from the, the slave rebellions in the late 1700s, inspired by the French Revolution, which was those rebellions were so important to New Orleans. I mean, so many people moved to New Orleans across the Caribbean and brought like spice and, and obviously bitters, and, but, but probably the rhythms of Haiti and the voodoo aspect, all those things, whatever we think about them in New Orleans, all those things are Haitian inventions, Saint-Domingue, Santo Domingo. And so that rebellion, which drove people out black and white, um, a lot of them came to New Orleans so that Mr. Pacho came to New Orleans to, to save his life, basically. And, and then over time, he was a pharmacist, we're told. And so many booze things created at, were created as medicine. And I'm for that, by the way. I think it's great mm -hmm. medicine. Now, I don't know if how many people really believe that drinking a Sazerac or drinking a Vucare or drinking a martini was actually good for your health. But that was part of the pitch, you know, the sales pitch in the late 1800s, the early 1900s was all about, you know, get healthy, drink this. And, and so a lot, of, a lot of things like Peixot's bitters, for instance, were marketed initially as, for their health qualities, for their medicinal qualities. And, and, you know, we think of hot toddies even, we think of, there's, there's still the tradition that somehow alcohol equals good health. And I support that tradition. Let me bring, uh, I want to take a off quick, but Kelly, our producer, into the discussion. Kelly? Uh-huh. Do, do you have a favorite cocktail? I do have a favorite cocktail. I love a French 75. Okay. Uh, <laughs> our nodes, right? I mean, well, uh, my second book, I've written 52 books now, which is insane. But uh, my second book was Arnaud's Creole Cookbook. And I believe, I mean, I know the French 75 as in the name of the current bar there, but I believe it was created there or, or maybe in Paris, I don't know. But it was, the French 75 was actually a, a cannon or a, an artillery um, type in, used in World War I. So anything involving good stuff and champagne was okay with Arnaud's, with Count Arnaud, with his daughter Germaine, and then with the Casbarian family ever after. I don't, I mean, it's okay with me too, so. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Kelly, you know, and yeah. you're, no, you're, in good, think, you're in good company. Do I'll you have a favorite cocktail, Errol? Well, I usually go for Sazerac, which is, uh, uh, and, but also with Sazerac, um, I like old fashions, okay? Mm -hmm. And then increasingly I like Negroni's. Oh, I love uh, Negronis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, especially going to an Italian restaurant to have a Negroni. Um, and, and the Negroni is uh, an acquired taste. Uh, some people the first time, you know, might not like it, but, but I think those three um, would be good. I always thought during the week, the, um, there was a church that was giving a, actually it was a Linton lecture. And the theme was about modern icons and things that are popular and all that. But anyway, they always have a drink before, a non-alcoholic drink, but they're giving out recreations of French 75s. It's oh. a symbol of modern times, yeah. And no, no, it did have a little champagne in it. So um, it was in there. So, so what is this, champagne and uh, is it like a juice? 
I'm not 100% sure. Is it is it another of those um, raspberry liqueur things? I Yeah, so it's um, gin, simple syrup, lemon, and champagne or Prosecco, some kind of bubbles on top right. of it. Bubbles are good. Bubbles are always good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a really good drink, and it's a really, uh, uh, it's, it's really popular drink. Um, and I remember that with with Arnold's that had the French seventy five. I mean, the bar by that name. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know if there's a long history of that, but yeah. under the Casbarian family, which is still there. I mean, I worked with the great late great um, Archie Casbarian on our cookbook in the eighties, but his kids now run it. Jane, his his wife, widow, is still around, and I see this on Facebook. All I know about anything is on Facebook. Um, but that said, um, the French 75 was such a part of Arnaud's history. I mean, Arnaud's was founded in 1918, which is, of course, as we know, the end of World War One. And the French 75 was an artillery piece during World War One. And, you know, it was 75, I don't know, millimeters or whatever they whatever they measure, like a 50 millimeter or 45 caliber, you know, the gun stuff. But um, but. In Paris, I believe there was created a celebratory drink that they named after the after this that had helped out at the Battle of the Marne and you know a lot of things that saved France that time. The next go around in World War II, France was not so lucky. Um, for all the French seventy fives in the world could only ease the pain. You know, there's another drink. It's uh, not as well known, but that really New Orleans and, and really the Sazerac people have saved. It's called the Ohen, O J E N N, mm -hmm. which is um, a herb saying. Herb saying. It's Spanish, and it's one of these licorice anise flavored mm -hmm. um, sort of drinks. And for many years, it was really popular in New Orleans uh, to have an Ohen cocktail. Where you, um, and uh, anyway, the Ohen family in Spain was going out of business. And some New Orleanians got together and bought the remaining stock of it. Oh, a whole bunch of kids, maybe like a hundred cases. Um, and um, Martin's and Martin Wine Cellars was involved with that. Martin might still have a couple of bottles of the old Ohen, but since then the Sazerac people have started making their own version of Ohen. They got the copyright for it. Oh, that's cool. Uh, they have a bottle, just like the old bottle, except it's like a, a newer bottle, but. That's something that, that really New Orleans doing. And well, that that is great. I I mean, I'm for all the pieces. I'm for New Orleans doing something interesting. I'm for the old ways being preserved. I just am, you know. I mean, there's a part of me that doesn't want anything beloved to go away. And Ohin was definitely beloved. Um, and and it it did turn up. I mean, in over the years, like at Arno's in the Arno's cookbook time, as well as later on. You do run into a lot of Ohen cocktails, and and it, of course, when you first look when you see Ohen, you think Irish, but then they say Ohen with the J, and you go like, well, that's Spanish. So, um, so it it does have a pretty interesting story, and in the fact that you know New Orleanians are leading the fight to preserve the Ohen is um, to save the Ohen. Um, I'm for I'm for all of that. And New Orleans was late developing. Indeed, as America was as a wine country. I mean, Europe mm -hmm. was making wine long before the United States was in New Orleans. But uh, and we were like a, a whiskey drinking town. Yep. Uh, 
for the longest yeah. period of time. And what does what does rye whiskey bring to the uh, bring to the drink? Okay, well, um, rye whiskey is is I mean as a it's a less, this is just my totally non-scientific. I mean, as you added, it's a less sweet, less sugary version of say a bourbon. Um, it also brings history though, because, um, you know, I forget exactly when I've said this, but um, rye whiskey was made by George Washington at Mount Vernon. I mean, the guy was like an entrepreneur. He was always doing stuff, you know, to make a buck. And and that's not the George Washington we think of on the Delaware, but um, but so he made rye whiskey. And then my favorite part is that the Whiskey Rebellion, which was kind of the first real showdown between citizens, you know, kind of I picture them being very redneck, frankly, but between citizens and the federal government was known as the Whiskey Rebellion. It was people refusing to pay taxes and refusing to follow the laws about making whiskey. That was in Western Virginia, which of course became West Virginia. And needless to say, the federal government won. So when we, we hear about the time of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and all that, people were fighting over their right to make rye whiskey. And to this day, one of the great renaissances of rye whiskey making is in Pennsylvania. And so I, I typically get my rye whiskey from Pennsylvania, though it is it can be made on well whiskey can be made almost anywhere. There is the tradition that that bourbon is named after Bourbon County in Kentucky, um, but I really I the laws used to say that, and I've kind of picked up on the fact they don't say it anymore. So you'll see, you know, like I don't know what Louisiana bourbon or Texas bourbon. I'm like, don't use that name. <laughs> but but apparently you won't go to jail for it anymore. So rye is rye is a whiskey. I when I am using right now Bullet uh, ninety five rye Frontier whiskey, um, and it's straight American rye whiskey. It is it is arguably I mean while um, Jim Beam and other companies will claim this for bourbon, um, but rye whiskey was kind of the original American whiskey. So. Errol, you were you were right to say we were kind of a whiskey town in New Orleans. I would guess that a whole lot of the whiskey we drank early on, you know, in the 1700s, the 1800s, that probably was rye. And and so it doesn't surprise me that Walter Bergeron, when he created the Vieux you know, had the idea that, let, I mean, he could have chosen anything. There was bourbon, there was Tennessee sipping whiskey, there were a lot of things, but he chose rye. And I find or I choose to believe that he did that because it was kind of the original American whiskey. So things like uh, Jack Daniels, that's what made with, uh, with corn, right? Mm -hmm. Right, right. And I'm, I'm not 100%, believe it or not, I'm not 100% sure, sure what, what rye is. I guess it's made with rye, like a wheat variant. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can basically turn almost anything in this earth into alcohol. And people have. People have never had any qualms about making alcohol. You know, that everything, everything they've got, it's like, oh, we got leftover bread. Hey, how can we make it into alcohol somehow? Mm -hmm. Um, and and so rye is rye is a wheat variant, I'm guessing. Um, and 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 so they use that, they probably put it in liquid of some sort, let it ferment. Um, the natural sugars turn into alcohol. 
And, and there you have it. You got whiskey. You know, at a glance, it may or may not taste very good, but it'll get you snockered. So that's mm -hmm. kind of what people seem to value. I wonder if George Washington ever tried to sell any of his rye whiskey to, to Thomas Jefferson. That's uh, a good question. I, mm -hmm. I don't, well, actually that, that raises a good point. I sense that Thomas Jefferson was anti-whiskey. Me now, too. He, I can't tell was, you why, but I get the same feeling. Well, he, well, let's see, first off, he did support the rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion, because he always supported everybody's rebellion. I mean, the French were cutting off everybody's head and he was saying, yeah, but you know, that's freedom. He, he, he always was on the lunatic fringe of rebellion, but he did say something that I have taken to heart in my life and I love wine. Um, he once said, no country that drinks wine has an alcoholism problem and no country that drinks whiskey does not. <laughs> and I thought that was really pretty amazing as a statement. I mean, I'm, I'm here drinking whiskey while we talk, but, um, but still Tom had a good point. Yeah, he was probably, uh, well, I don't know if French 75 existed at that time, but that, that might've been his drink because he spent a lot of time in <laughs> France. Uh, he did. He did. And, and a little bit of time in Italy. So, but, but really the history of cocktails, what, what I know of the broad history, I mean, I focused on the Vucare in the book, obviously the Vucare cocktail even, but, um, but most, very few, very few of the cocktails that we even think about, maybe none were, were around when cocktail, when Thomas Jefferson was alive. Mm -hmm. And, and so I mean, I picture the cane tucks, as we call them in New Orleans, the people who, the Americans, les Americans, who came down the river. We called them cane tucks. We didn't like them very much. Um, but I picture them kind of just swilling from a big jug, you know, swilling straight whiskey from a big jug. There was, there was no what lo locals now call cocktail culture. What the hell was that? I mean, it was like whiskey in a big jug. And, and so when, when TJ, as I call my buddy Thomas Jefferson, when he was pontificating, um, he was thinking of Cane Tuck's swilling whiskey from a big jug. Um, I don't know that there were any cocktails. I mean, for a long time, we were taught that New Orleans created the cocktail at Peixot's Bitters, that at the pharmacy there, and I love the story, it's largely dismissed now, like many New Orleans history stories, but um, that, that people started mixing alcohol, booze, in so-called egg cups called a coquetier, named after a rooster or something like that, coquetier. And then the Americans showed up and said, what's that uh, coquetier stuff? Uh, yeah, like cocktail? Yeah? Yeah, okay. Let me give me one of them cocktails. And, and so I, that is such a perfect story that I'm really sad that nobody believes it anymore. But... Um, but that said, New Orleans and the cocktail definitely have a life together. That's what's important, whether we invented the cocktail or whether somebody else did somewhere else. Um, we have always, in our love of whiskey and other hard booze, um, always really, really loved drinking those things. And, and we did have the river, Mississippi River, obviously, where all those cane tucks would bring down whiskey. So we had a lot more access to whiskey than yes. most places in America. You know, it reminds me of a bit of a leap, but what they always say about Ray Charles, that, that Ray Charles was not born in New Orleans, but he should have been, okay? Mm -hmm. And the same thing about the cocktail. It may not have been invented in New Orleans, but it should have been. Uh, I agree. Uh, 
I'm in the right place. So, so anyway, so your book is called The View of Array. Array. The View of Array. book. Uh, and, it's, and it's published by LSU Press. It is. It's part of the iconic New Orleans cocktail series, which, you know, started with the Sazerac, as I totally believe it should. And and then uh, there's a Cafe Brulot, there's an Absence Suisse. Um, I, I actually, that when I, when I called them up and said, Hey, how do you get this gig? Because I'd heard about these books and I liked them. I like what I saw. They, they sent, they emailed me a list of cocktails that they wanted covered. And, and it's like, Whoa, that's kind of nice. You know? So I looked at them all and did the usual Google thing. And, you know, I just really love the idea that, the, well, first off, I like the Monteleon hotel. Yes, I worked for the Fairmont in years past, but I always liked the hotel in the French Quarter. I like the Monteleon family. I like that it's family owned, for God's sake. Um, and and so that and the story of Walter Bergeron creating it and the different elements, the different ingredients. I just said, hey, can I have the Vieux Carré? And they said, sure. <laughs> so so a year later, there's a book. And um, and that's you know, and I know Errol, you've done books, so it's it's an interesting relationship we have with our books. And and you know, my life will never be the same. I'll always be ready to make a Vucare cocktail, and and I'm having one right now. What's what's going on there? Like a while ago, you said you were drinking whiskey, and you have the Vucare cocktail also. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't, you know, I I always make I always make a Vucare when I talk about it. So. I, I'm surrounded by brandy and Benedictine and sweet vermouth and rye whiskey and also Angostura and Peychaud bitters. Those are the six ingredients. Um, what, brand of rye, what, what brand of rye whiskey do you have? Oh, I have Bullet, which which oh, also wow. the company Bullet makes, I think, a really good bourbon. I've I've had their stuff before, and it's. It's kind of, I think, one of those modern, you know, kind of gourmet or or what there's a word for this, kind of artisanal type things. So a part of me always hates pouring artisanal products into larger, like, you know, having the $30 tomatoes and spaghetti sauce. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I just don't think it pays off. But when I went to the liquor store to start this project, there was bullet there. And I thought, well, God, I know them. They're good. And so that's what I use for that. And I use Tribuno or Tribuno, sweet vermouth, and also um, cognac. And I, I'm actually using B&B &B right now because the recipe calls for brandy and, and Benedictine. And and B&B &B is, it stands for brandy and Benedictine. So I just thought it was too good to be true. Well, if we'd have known you're going to be doing that, we'd have had Kelly drinking a French 75, and I would have probably been drinking the Negroni just for the uh, adventure. So it could, yep. have all been, could have all been boozing at the same time. Well, that would have been very nice. And and since my favorite cocktail, no offense to the Vieux Carré, and which is very similar and very good, but um, I'm a Negroni guy. So uh, so it would have been hard for me not to join you for a Negroni. Yeah, other than the distance between Virginia and Louisiana, so. Yeah, that, well, join you is, in, in the world of computers, join you is a relative term. Anyway, well, thank you very much. Uh, good luck with the book. Do you have another one coming up or? Um, um, not at the moment. I think uh, this is book number 59 and I'm convinced I need to do at least 60 in my lifetime, That's but amazing. I don't I don't know what that is. So, um, 
you know, I, I did a lot of books in the 22 years I was in Texas, for instance, and and that was fine, but that's now that's over now. So, so I don't really know. I'd like to write a book about Giacomo Puccini, but why anybody would read me on the subject of Giacomo Puccini, I do not know. So, <laughs> so who knows? Maybe well, Errol. Okay. Well, John, thank you very much. Great. It's great to great to see you guys again and to see you on Zoom. And even though even though now we're gonna go into the world of podcasts, I've actually never been on a podcast before. So you guys are really you're my, you're my first. And as we know, a guy never forgets his first. Well, great. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.